0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called We Live Only When We Love. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday September the 7th 2014. Last month about an hour north of my home The actor Robin Williams hanged himself at the age of 63. Just six months earlier, Philip Seymour Hoffman died of a drug overdose at the age of 46. Both of these men had reached the pinnacle of professional success. Both were worth many millions of dollars. But they both also struggled with addiction and depression. I wonder if their medical disease was complicated by some spiritual poverty. The biggest disease today, said Mother Teresa one time, is more spiritual than physical. She said, it's not leprosy or tuberculosis, but rather the feeling of being unwanted, uncared for, and deserted by everybody. The greatest evil is the lack of love and charity. The terrible indifference toward one's neighbor who lives at the roadside, assaulted by exploitation, corruption, poverty, and disease. Medical sickness is bad enough. The lack of love is a darkness that leads to death. Life without love is impossible. The suicides of Williams and Hoffman reminded me of the song by the hip-hop group the Black Eyed Peas called Where is the Love? The refrain goes, Father, 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 help us. Send some guidance from above. Cause people got me, got me questioning. Where is the love? When Christians are on their game, When we keep the main thing, the main thing, we meet what Mother Teresa calls the world's biggest disease with what Tertullian once called our distinctive sign. According to Jewish rabbinic tradition, there are 613 commandments in the Torah. Jesus, Paul, James, and John all say, that we fulfill the entire law when we love our neighbor. The epistle this week is one of six texts that links our claim to love God with proof that we love our neighbor. Paul writes, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor Has fulfilled the law. The entire Old Testament law, says Paul in Romans 13, may be summed up in this one rule love your neighbor as yourself. Writing to the Galatians, Paul said, The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command love your neighbor as yourself. <clears throat> James chapter 2 verse 8 repeats this message almost verbatim. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. And then of course there's the famous words from 1st John chapter 4, 20 to 21. If anyone says I love God, yet hates his brother, He's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Loving your neighbor, said Jesus, is the greatest commandment. In his last words to his disciples, Jesus called this a new commandment. He said, Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. All people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In other words, God's redemption of the world is mediated through the love of his people. It's not obvious in what sense Jesus' commandment in John 13 is new. In fact, it's an ancient commandment that goes back 3,000 years to the founding of the Hebrew community in Leviticus 19, 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love, said Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, is the greatest gift, without which I'm just whistling in the dark. Just as this ancient commandment was repeated throughout the New Testament, it was repeated in the centuries after the first believers. The African-Roman Tertullian wrote, Our care for the derelict and our active love have become our distinctive sign. See, they say, how they love one another and how ready they are to die for each other. Then there's Maximus the Confessor from the 7th century. Blessed is the one who can love all people equally, always thinking good of everyone. In his commentary on Galatians 6, verse 10, the church father Jerome describes how John the Evangelist, author of the Gospel and the Book of Revelation, preached at Ephesus into his 90s. Christian tradition holds that he died in about the year 100. At that age, John was so feeble that he had to be carried into the church at Ephesus on a stretcher. Then, when he could no longer preach a normal sermon, he would lean up on one elbow. The only thing he said was, Little children, love one another. People would then carry him back out of the church. This continued for weeks, says Jerome, and every week he repeated his one-sentence sermon. Little children, love one another. Weary of the repetition, the congregation finally asked, Master, why do you always say this? Because, John replied, it is the Lord's command, and if this only is done, it is enough. As the former chaplain at Yale University, William Sloan Coffin pushed back against the intellectual idolatry there. He observed how students at Yale thought cogito ergo sum, Descartes' famous I think, therefore I am, was what it was all about, and Yale encouraged them to think like that. But Coffin suggested a subversive counterproposal. He says, I felt very deeply that it's amo ergo sum, I love, therefore I am. This Latin phrase, which is the title of a 2002 book by the German Christina Kessler, can be translated slightly differently to make the point more radical. I am because I love. Or as the poet farmer Wendell Berry put it, I only live to the extent that I love. In his book of poetry called Leavings from the year 2012, Wendell Berry points the way for us in a very short poem, Prayer. I know that I have life only insofar as I have love. I have no love except it come from thee. Help me, please, to carry this candle against the wind. We live only when we love. For books this week, I review a title by Mitri Raheb. It's called Faith in the Face of Empire. The Bible Through Palestinian Eyes, Mary Knoll, Orbis Books, 2014, 166 pages. Mitri Raheb was born in Palestine across the street from where Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He's a Palestinian Christian, a Lutheran pastor, and a scholar who earned his doctorate in theology from Marburg University in Germany. He's written 13 books, edits a journal, served the Synod of the Evangelical Lutheran Church, and helped to found several ecumenical peace organizations. He's also lived through nine wars in his 50 years, all of which lends this little book about Palestine a degree of street cred. Raheb could have written a scholarly monograph, but this is a book written for a general audience that's based upon his personal experiences. He looks at Palestine through a long lens, namely 3,000 years of occupation by numerous regional powers, beginning with the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, Greeks, Romans, Byzantines, and proceeding up to Israel today. And make no mistake, Israel is an empire oppressor by proxy as a client state of Western powers. His book tries to understand this long view of the Palestinian narrative in a way that's politically relevant and theologically creative. Empires control the movement of people, control resources like water, settled land use state terror, in exile or deport people. The oppressed subjects of empires resist in all sorts of different ways. They fight back. They observe God's laws. They accommodate themselves as best they can, collaborate, and separate themselves. Rahab doesn't pretend that there are any clear or easy answers to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. But he's written a provocative book for the people of God, who are called not just to seek peace for Arabs or Jews, Christians or Muslims, but for every person in people. Mitri Rahib, Faith in the Face of Empire, the Bible Through Palestinian Eyes. In fact, for movies this week, we go to Israel in a documentary film called The Law in These Parts from 2011. David Shulman, professor at Hebrew University in Jerusalem and an activist in the Arab-Jewish partnership called Ta'ayush, called this movie the finest Israeli documentary ever made about the Israeli occupation. The movie explores the systemic judicial injustices inflicted on hundreds of thousands of civilian Palestinians. The movie also touches on the legality of torture, mass arrests, prolonged administrative detention without trial, the violent suppression of civilian demonstrations, punitive home demolitions, severe restrictions on freedom of movement, and other practices that have become commonplace under Israeli rule. The filmmaker gets the Israeli judges to describe what they have done, including one former member of Israel's Supreme Court. The judges admit that state security and control come before human rights and justice. Such is the appalling record of the Israeli judicial system, says Shulman. Similar to this film is the documentary The Gatekeepers, which interviews the six living former heads of Israel's Shin Bet. Once again from Israel, the law in these parts. And finally for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Wendell Berry, a farmer poet from Kentucky. It's called A Timbered Choir. Even while I dreamed, I prayed that what I saw was only fear and no foretelling. For I saw the last known landscape destroyed for the sake of the objective. The soil bludgeoned, the rock blasted. Those who had wanted to go home would never get there now. I visited the offices where, for the sake of the objective, the planners planned blank desks sit in rows. I visited the loud factories where the machines were made that would drive ever forward toward the objective. I saw the forest reduced to stumps and gullies. I saw the poisoned river, the mountain cast into the valley. I came to the city that nobody recognized because it looked like every other city. I saw the passages worn by the unnumbered footfalls of those whose eyes were fixed upon the objective. Their passing had obliterated the graves and the monuments of those who had died in pursuit of the objective, and who had long ago forever been forgotten, according to the inevitable rule that those who have forgotten forget that they have forgotten. Men, women, and children now pursued the objective as if nobody had ever pursued it before. The races and the sexes now intermingled perfectly in pursuit of the objective. The once enslaved, the once oppressed, were now free to sell themselves to the highest bidder and to enter the best-paying prisons in pursuit of the objective, which was the destruction of all enemies, which was the destruction of all obstacles, which was the destruction of all objects which was to clear the way to victory, which was to clear the way to promotion, to salvation, to progress, to the completed sale, to the signature on the contract, which was to clear the way to self-realization, to self-creation, from which nobody who ever wanted to go home would ever get there now. For every remembered place had been displaced. The signpost had been bent to the ground and covered over. Every place had been displaced, every love unloved, every vow unsworn, every word unmeant to make the way for the passage of the crowd of the individuated, the autonomous, the self-actuated, the homeless with their many eyes opened toward the objective which they did not yet perceive in the far distance having never known where they were going, having never known where they came from. A Timbered Choir by Wendell Berry Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September the 7th, 2014. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.